Hi, this is Corey McRae, the senator for the 45th Legislative District, and you're listening to the Condoy Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with my co-host, Mako's Executive Director, Michael Sanderson. Michael, how are you today? Good, Kevin. You? Doing very well. And we are very happy to have this week back again, Mako's Research Director, Robin Eilenberg. Robin, thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been a while. It has. been too long. We're really happy to have you here. So this week on the podcast, we're going to talk about budgets in brief. Happy fiscal new year to all of those listening. It is a great time of year to be in local government. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> and then when is a meeting a meeting and why does it matter? We have a very interesting report from the Open Meetings Compliant Board to talk about with you all. So let's go ahead and jump right in. Robin, you put a fascinating piece up on the Conduit Street blog. It is all about Mako's budgets in brief tax survey. Talk to us about that and, and why this is so important. Absolutely. This is the third year we've provided this quick look overview of all the county government budgets for the coming fiscal year and Baltimore City. And we release it in honor of the new year on July 1st. And we're here today to talk about it. Yeah, we sweep up the confetti and all <laughs> yeah. that sort of stuff. You know, new fiscal year is a really big deal for government nerds like us. Yeah, we so love it. It's pretty exciting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> A lot of people happy to have their budgets wrapped up, that's, that's for true. sure. Yeah. So in counties range vastly in size, and we see that dynamic in the overall general fund operating budgets that that vary from $37 million to $3 billion. And we also see this year a general increase in the size of what we call the general fund operating budgets. That's about standard from year to year over the past few years that we've collected this data, at least Mm -hmm. we have some modest growth there. This year, however, we have a remarkable number of counties increasing taxes Mm -hmm. of one type or another. We have more counties than not this year increasing taxes, 13 uh, to be exact. That includes Baltimore City. Um, not just talking about property taxes here. We're talking about property, income, other types of right. fees and surcharges. But it's a it's a difference from the past couple of years. Right. I think it's worth breaking that, that down a little bit. I mean, the most visible parts of the county revenue structure are the county property tax and the income tax. Most other states, the counties don't use the income tax as much as we do in Maryland. There's a long-standing policy here about that I think is worth getting into. Right. But we have two big sources to go to, property and income. And it has been a long time since we've had a sheet that looked like this. Uh, it's 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 so you know a lot of jurisdictions went to the big areas and said we need yeah you know, we're we we've been bending we have to break and you know, no one takes this decision lightly. That's so, right, and we've got this dynamic across blue counties, red counties. Uh, we're it's not a political divide here. Uh, we have several four that are raising property taxes. Uh, several of those more than more than one cent. And then we have many more uh, raising income taxes, quite a few to the maximum income tax uh, level under state law. And then we have others, you know, exploring additional avenues, looking at hotel motel taxes, uh, fire service taxes, right. transfer and recordation fees, uh, really 
needing to boost their revenues and, to, and, to make and I, this budget. And I think it's interesting because, like you just said, I think a lot of counties are doing this because they need to sustain their current operations. And we think a lot about what may be coming down the line. But when you hear a county saying, we need to do this just to sustain what we're doing right now, that's that's pretty significant. Mm-hmm. We see certainly a trend in increasing taxes. We don't know. We don't think there's necessarily one story that that's the reason behind that. Yeah, trend, it's, so. this isn't yeah. that that's the thing that's a little unusual right. to me. I mean, I've I've been with Mako almost 25 years and, you know, we every year we go through a process of kind of getting this snapshot in one form or another and getting a sense of what happened in county budgets is always something our members are interested in. They always want to know, are we alone looking at this and that sort of, and this was a year Mako got a lot of phone calls from county budget officers or from elected officials saying, wow, you know, this is the year the dam's going to break. We we've been holding the line, but we can't do it this year. Uh, um, including a lot of counties, uh, forgive me, this is a sidetrack from, from raising taxes, but I think it's related. A, a lot of counties dipping into their reserve funds to keep from having to do this. And mm-hmm. I don't know that we've got that counted county by county, but that's anecdotally something I think that has been going on as well. Counties, you know, get by for fiscal 18 or 19 saying, okay, we'll, we'll use a little bit, you know, we'll, we'll eat a little seed corn uh, to get through a couple, you know, lean years. But then, also, yeah, the rubber meets the road. Feedback. Mm-hmm. Yeah, excuse me. Yeah. No, yeah, go ahead, Robin. So you actually, I think, I can imagine doing this survey, even though you got some of the answers, you had to maybe reach out again and say, wait, are you sure this is what you raise things to? Or because it seems like, first of all, just the number that are raising and then the amounts that we're seeing property taxes and income taxes being raised by, it's just, it's pretty remarkable. Right. I definitely uh, verified the eye poppers. (laughs) (laughs) So I had to to double back a few times. And, And in those discussions, it was revealed to me. It's this is not an easy lift for any county. You even feel that at the staff level, you get those reverberations of, yeah, this is a tough thing to do to raise taxes on your residents. And, you know, it is it is a different year. I was looking at DLS's uh, data from last year. They had said local income tax rates generally had remained relatively stable with only six counties changing their rates in the past five years. Five year stretch. Yeah, yeah. Right, but right. then this year I'm seeing seven, mm. you know, raising their rates just in one year. Right. So. And and some of those pretty material. Um, the other thing that's, that's tricky with the income tax is you, you, set a rate, but you're looking at the future calendar year. So changing, changing the, the income tax rate is different from the property tax. Property tax is assessed on a fiscal year, July to June, but income taxes are on a calendar year. So, I mean, that has a delayed effect, but, but still that's, that's a tough button for jurisdictions to go, go to as well. I mean, now I have thoughts about the tax policy behind all this stuff, but, um, I don't know. I, I'm I'm surprised that it's happened, and I don't think I can recall a year with as many jurisdictions painted into this corner without there being one big theme. Right. It was like, oh, well, you know, the economy fell apart, or this year's property assessments were in the toilet, and so we had no choice but to go, you know, go raise a tax rate because we, you know, we we can't lay off all of our 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 deputy sheriffs, right? Right. So no big shift of. Yeah. Coming down. But you're yeah. not you're not hearing a whole lot of counties who are launching big, bold new initiatives. It's it's not that's not the nature of what this is. It isn't counties saying, 
here's our new big thing. And to do it, we need to raise this tax rate to accomplish big popular things. I mean, a a lot of this translates to funding schools. Mm -hmm. No surprise. Mm Uh, and that's the biggest thing in the tip in most counties budgets. So, you know, education can be as big as everything else put together. So we know that's the biggest cost driver. Uh, public safety and related issues is usually number two. But I mean, there's no one out there who's launching some Major sexy new initiative right? and saying we're going to pay higher tax rate because we want to accomplish these things. It's we need to keep pace with our schools. We need to build the buildings that were that our kids need. And so forth. I mean, different stories place by place, but I haven't heard anybody who's like building castles in the sky with this. Right. So there's not necessarily a trend here that we can identify as to why this year we're seeing such a remarkable number of counties raising taxes. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to get those stories, I think, over the over the course of the year. And we do do deeper uh, budget survey and analysis in the coming months in in Mm -hmm. partnership with the Department of Legislative Services. So we'll see this fleshed out a little bit. Okay, so yeah. so we talked about property and income tax and other taxes. Let's talk about employees and what did you see, Robin, with the survey as it relates to what counties are doing for their employees? A- across the board, modest increases, whether mm-hmm. it's in a cost of living allowance, um, across the board raise or you know a small small step or or merit based increase, but n- nothing nothing too remarkable here. Uh, counties do usually try to you know at least keep pace with right. increases in, in expenses. And no big outliers on that front. I mean, we're in a weird economy where we have low inflation overall. So people people think of cost of living numbers like five and seven percent in their lifetime. Yeah, you know, just you know, just a political generation or two. Of go, given your police officers 7% was not an unthinkable thing mm. because the nationwide inflation rate was 4 or 5%, so you're not doing much more than keeping pace to give them 7 Exactly. I mean, this year this column is like 2s and 1s, but you look at you look at the CPI, I mean, overall inflation is a 1.8 or mm-hmm. thereabouts, mm-hmm. so I mean, that is basically a cost of living adjustment. You go to negotiate, you use economic data as the framework work for that. So it feels weird. I'm sure if you're a labor negotiator who's been doing this for 20 years, which most of them have, and and they're thinking, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we were debating between eight and six. And now it's like 1.8 versus 1.6. It's like a totally different ballgame. Yeah, definitely. They're keeping pace with the CPI for sure, but definitely a a change in the economic conditions and, and inflation. It is weird to see. But I think the important thing to note here is that all counties are trying to make sure that they are at least maintaining so that their folks can can maintain that cost of living. Yeah. Now, what what does lie in the background here is as we look at county employees and the groups that either the county governments bargain with directly or or that they they just award based on what they can afford in the county budget. Um, the other horse in this race is on the Board of Education side, and we know that there was a special incentive through state funding for school boards to come up with a 3% across-the-board adjustment, either a COLA or something equivalent for their teachers. Right. And that, and if the, if the jurisdictions were able to fund that, then there would be some extra state money for recruiting and retaining and so forth, particularly on you know, with your newer teachers. Uh, 
I believe every single county, at least, you know, has put in the paperwork saying we did that. So one that I've heard, I think sure. I think yeah. every county did the three percent for their teachers, mm-hmm. but it looks like zero counties are doing three percent across the board for their general employees. Yeah, it's a good point to make, and of course, like like you mentioned, there was that carrot with the with the Commission on Innovation and Excellence in Education. I don't know, Michael, if you want to say the word. <laughs> Kerwin, our guy. Right? Yeah, that's our favorite. So there was a there was a carrot there. So obviously that that does influence what counties did to, to be eligible for that extra state funding. But yeah, you're not seeing that for, you know, the other side of the equation, the other county employees. Nobody's getting that that big of a jump. There's a there was there's a long history of a lot of counties maintaining a policy of parity with the the either the bargaining units or the employer groups employee groups in the board of ed and county government and for a long time counties basically would say whatever we're able to fund the schools we'll fund the county employees too and i i think that's no longer the rule of thumb that it once was maybe when i started at mako back when we were still writing on stone tablets and stuff but you know things like, have changed huh? but but i mean it couldn't be a more stark break than this year with a special incentive like we can we can come up with three for the teachers but we're not going to be able to do that for your county attorney or the person who runs the parks or for your sheriff's deputies and so forth so right and speaking of teachers robin let's talk about education funding because i think this is probably one of the most significant pieces that i've seen in this survey and it's all about maintenance of effort right yes absolutely so that's the last variable we look at here in the in the quick take on the 2020 budgets what we're talking about uh, with maintenance of effort is a little bit technical, but not for this educated audience. <laughs> you might, you may have been down this road before. We've, we've gotten yeah. down a little bit. Yeah, we so we talk bit. about school yeah. funding from time to Just time. Just a little bit. Yeah. So what you might see reported in the newspaper um, could be what the County Board of Ed asks for in their budget or what the county responds um, through its appropriation. But maintenance of effort is the amount of government amount of funding that for operating expenses that a county is required to provide uh, because of state mandates mm-hmm. and the the general you know funding system and and this this formula is intended to ensure that each school board receives the same amount of funding on a per student basis from year to year. Right. So, so, so county keep ponying up the same amount per student as the year before the state ensures that you do that. I mean, in a way, that's a way of the state saying we're making investments in education. We don't want the county government to just back uh, that money out and hand it hand it to public safety or some, something money, else, right? right? We want that. We want state education money to go to education. So counties continue doing what you're doing. And some years ago, they put some extra teeth into that law. It's now an absolute mandate rather than just sort of a condition of getting your state money. So anyway, but like maintenance of effort is the rule in in Maryland, you've got to maintain. It's it's a double-edged sword though, because once you've decided to go higher than you have to in a given year, with some really limited exceptions, once you fund over maintenance of effort, you've set the bar higher for your future year's budgets. Right. If you ever decide to give on a per student basis more funding than you did in the previous year, you're then committed to that forever into the future. Right. Um, you, you can never go go back down. And that's why this is so significant, I think, what you're about to tell us on what you found here, because this this is talking about that and making those future commitments. It seemed like 
a lot of folks weren't worried about that this year. Right. So there are 23 counties and Baltimore City makes 24 and 21 went over the amount that they were required to um, in funding education operating expenses almost this everybody. year. It's mm-hmm. almost everybody. And 17 of those are going over by more than a million. Several of them are going over by tens of millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, there are some exceptions whereby a county can apply to have certain one-time expenses exempted from maintenance of effort. For the most part, this means that they're making a long-term commitment to more funding on a per-student basis right. into the future. And that's yeah. significant show of dedication. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a, so there's a, there's a tiny ribbon here. There's a piece in the law that says, hey, if you've got some one-time money and you want to go build a computer lab that, that doesn't have a recurring element or find some library books or some other specific things like that, you can do that above and beyond and not build it into the base. But there's no reason to think that that much of this money is like that. Most of this is in the base, paying teachers and you know ongoing operating expenses, meaning the county is saying, we'll do it this year and we'll do it forever. Right. So very, very significant there. And how's I mean, the, the total? I mean, you know, got some counties doing tens of millions, but in the aggregate, I mean, it looks, you know, in, in the you know, thumbnail, it's 150 million or right. thereabouts. That's real money. Right. That's a lot of money across the state, of course, but that's definitely yeah. significant. Right. Yeah. And this is, again, in addition to what Michael said <laughs> is the mainstay of education funding, which can be amount to um, equal to all the other costs in a county budget. I mean, it can be 50% or more of a county's budget. And this is on top of that. Okay, Robin, so tell folks where they can find this survey, where they can access all this information, because there's a lot more we could talk about here today, but we just don't have the time. And there's so much they can dig through. And as you also mentioned, there is another survey that'll come later this year that will go more in depth. So where can they find this? And then what do we expect moving forward? Sure, this is up on the Conduit Street blog. If you um, search the category county budgets, it'll come up near the top. We also do house our larger budget and tax rate survey on the MECO website under research. Excellent. So very good. A lot of great information there. We'll, of course, link that in the in the, in the the podcast feed for you to, to go ahead and access as well. But any closing thoughts here on, on budgets? I mean, just like a, a placeholder. This is new. This is basically like hot off the press and the page is still warm for us to be looking at it. We spent some time with, with our county elected officials this morning talking through it a little bit. And it's always a hot commodity. Over time, I think we can digest this a little bit, but I'm interested in seeing the mix between income tax and property tax and how that is changing. And in particular, it looks like I'm, I'm sure that the median Maryland taxpayer is already paying the maximum state allowed income tax. The 3.2% is the limit. Definitely. We were already at the point where more Marylanders were at the limit than not. Uh, You have a couple more jurisdictions that have gone to the limit or are getting close to it. Um, You're getting to the point where the the income tax is no longer available for most jurisdictions. And, And as we turn the page from kind of routine budgeting into maybe a big challenge to find revenue to fund education for the next decade. We're thinking about Kerwin again. Um, is the income tax like canceled? Right. right. And I, I mean, is like it just uh, maxed out. Yeah. Right. Like be. where we are right now, you're looking at an awful lot of jurisdictions that have completely maxed out that credit card mm-hmm. and are looking elsewhere in the wallet. That's a, that's an important and interesting dynamic for everybody who cares about education. So like, let's put a pin in that and that might be a half segment down the road sometime. Absolutely. 
When we come back, we're going to talk about what makes a meeting a meeting and why it matters. All that and more after the break. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson and Robin Eilenberg. Let's get into what makes a meeting a meeting. We are talking here about the Open Meetings Act, Michael and Robin, and there was a very interesting decision handed down over the last week. Michael, talk to us about what that is and why it's so significant. So, I mean, let's set, let's set this up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, Maryland, like most states, but I think we actually do a better job than most places, Maryland has sunshine laws. We want government to be open and transparent. We have things like the Maryland Public Information Act. That's sort of like the Freedom of Information Act at the federal level. You've heard of that. Right. Uh, so if the if the government holds a document, generally speaking, you can walk into the office and get a copy. Um, similarly, if the, if the government or a public body that's formed by the government or your elected representatives, if they're convening a meeting and they're going to be making decisions about stuff, they owe it to the public to give you advance notice of where the meeting's going to be, what time, what's on the agenda, and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 some jurisdictions have gone farther than the state law and all that sort of thing. That's fine. But in general, Maryland has a pretty high standard for be transparent in conducting public business. So let me know and, about it, make right. sure it's open, yep. and then maybe you know create some meeting minutes or at least put it on, on videotape so everybody knows exactly the decisions you were making. And, and transparency is a very good thing. Right. So, I mean, philosophically, 10 out of 10 people should be nodding their heads and saying, sounds good. Sounds right? good I mean, so far. Right, who, yep. Like, who is against this concept? Okay. Okay, well, let's dig like a level or two deeper and, and get into this. Um, one thing that's always been tricky with the Open Meetings Act. So this is about meetings of a public body, um, multiple people. And like the classic case for us, we're, we're the Association of Counties. Uh, we have lots of different boards and commissions and so forth that meet. But the obvious case for us would be like the Board of County Commissioners. Right. Uh, yesterday, uh, Natasha and I from our staff, we were up in Garrett County and spent some time chatting with the Garrett County Commissioners. And OK, so there are three commissioners. They're elected to do the general business of county government in Garrett. Mm-hmm. And they are the only elected officials in the county. So right. as county commissioners... If if you've taken your civics 101 class, and if you if you haven't, and you're listening to this podcast, you might need to go listen to Joe Rogan or something. Or maybe <laughs> maybe we're that good. That <laughs> right? it's, that's fine, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. That's, that's true. That's true. Actually, you should you right. should listen to Joe Rogan also, All the time. right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's good. Okay, well, after this, that's podcast. fine. Right? Yes, exactly. Um, but okay, so. Civics 101, they are both the executive branch and the legislative branch. So sometimes when they sit and meet, they are performing a function which is like a legislative body. They're like the Congress. Or they're like the state legislature. Or from the larger charter counties, they're like the county council in a place like Prince George's. They're debating a bill. They're deciding whether it should pass. They're adding amendments. Those are legislative functions. And that's clearly a public body conducting conducting public business and right in the heart of the open meetings law. So they're serving in a dual role. That's right. important to think about. 
Okay. So so when they're in a legislative capacity, it's a no-brainer. Everybody agrees this stuff is is legislative. This is your public body function. And so have an agenda, tell everybody where the meeting's going to be, let the reporters come, let the public come. They get to watch them fight and watch them vote and so forth. That's how it's supposed to work. Right. Easy. There also certainly are times when the county commissioners might be considering issues where they are really just running the government. They're not debating a resolution or a bill or the budget or something like that. It's a personnel matter. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, there, there are some special cases like right. that that are for sure not to be aired and open. So, you know, but, if you're thinking like, should we fire the county planner? That's the sort of thing that you're doing this as the managers as opposed to the legislature. The executive role. And so so there are executive functions of bodies that almost everybody agrees really shouldn't be out in the open. These things should be exempt from the public, you know, from the open meetings act, because this isn't really a public deliberative body. It's multiple people who have a joint executive responsibility. Right. All right. So now I've said all these words with multiple syllables and that sounds pretty tedious, (laughs) but I mean, think of it this way. Okay, with the analogy with Prince George's County, the Prince George's County Council's debating a bill. Everybody agrees the public should show up. But if the Prince George's County executive wants to meet with her budget officer and the county planner to talk about what the what the budget for the for the planning office is going to be next year, what should I submit as part of my proposed budget? Nobody thinks that you should need to invite a reporter into that room so that county professionals can discuss what are we going to propose? And what? that's all just right. executive function stuff, right? Okay, so so you know, in in places where these jobs are totally separate, it's kind of obvious. This is the public body; those meetings are open. This is the executive branch, and they make their decisions. And sometimes they'll have task forces or work groups that are big and participatory, or they'll hand things to a large participatory public group. But other times, it's just you know what? I got this idea. I want to clean up the trash. I've been talking about it with my leadership. Those don't didn't have to be open meetings. We're just going to pick up the trash day-to-day stuff right. yeah so executive versus legislative matters and that's part of why this is in the news today right the other part is even more interesting why it's in the news that a week ago we have one of the county jurisdictions tending to business for the county and like the specifics are kind of interesting but but not really central but we have a county body that is one of these two hat outfits it's the county council in Talbot County they don't have a county executive like Prince George's all they have are five at large council members who really function in that dual role they right. have a they have a county manager who runs things day to day but they're the ones who would hire and fire a new department head or decide whether to settle a lawsuit or all these like executive functions and so forth. And we so, have a lot of counties like that, right? Yeah. So there's, yeah, there's a couple, there's a couple charter counties and then most of you know, all the commissioner counties are like that. So, but it's mm-hmm. a majority of Maryland counties still have that dual role. This right. is one of them. Right. And turns out, uh, you know, a few months ago they were in the midst of trying to sort out sending a letter to the general assembly to take a position on a bill, which in all candor, I don't know where that act lies on the spectrum between a purely legislative deliberative function and a purely executive administrative function. Mm-hmm. In my judgment, it's somewhere in the middle mm-hmm. and it's in that gray area that makes this tricky to begin with. But in the process of deciding what to do, 
they definitely didn't have time to conduct a public meeting, put up public notice, wait two weeks so that the reporter and the public can be there so they can decide whether to show up at tomorrow's bill here. This is in the heat of it, the general the general assembly session. Right, where things you have, have to hours turn over. Yeah, sometimes right. to make a decision. So anyway, they did what exactly what you might imagine. They sort of started talking and saying, wow, that sounds important. Maybe we should get in a letter. And there ends up being, you know, someone sends a text, then there's an email, then there's a reply all, and then there's a phone call. But what happens over time is there's the fabric of a decision being made by if they all sat in a room together, that would clearly be a public body. And if they were conducting issues that were clearly legislative, they were talking about you know, passing a resolution to change the laws of Talbot County. Right. They definitely have to do that in an open session with public notice. But what about the, the, the act of saying, should we send a letter tomorrow? Would we all be willing to sign this letter? On behalf of our county, <laughs> taking a position on an issue right. that matters to us, right. right? But it's not one that we're debating here right. that we're going to pass that's going to affect our residents directly. This is a state bill right. that we're deciding whether or not we should weigh in on as, a, as, a, as an right. elected body. And, and like, make no mistake with the continuing this analogy from before, in Prince George's County, if the county executive wanted to weigh in on the same bill in Annapolis with the same timetable, there's absolutely nobody who would argue that she's obliged to have a public meeting and invite the reporters and the public as she sits in a room by herself or with her staff to decide whether to send that letter. So she could send an email to her budget officer and say, what do you think about this? Should the county weigh in? Or, or, the, no problem, or right? she and or her staff could all sit together, all mm-hmm. 11 people around a big table, right. and they could do that with the doors closed and nobody would say nobody would suggest that that's a violation of the law maybe somebody would say i don't like it but nobody would say that's outside the open meetings act mm-hmm. so what happens when this body sends some emails exchanges some texts and eventually arrives at a conclusion let's send a letter so the open meetings compliance board this is a body under the attorney general's office they are charged with overseeing these sunshine laws the, as as pertains to open meetings Um, they read through all this stuff. They cogitated for some time on this. Um, they got in, I mean, this is like a seven or eight page decision. A lot of theirs are six sentences. Tedious decision. So this is a lengthy, complicated decision, but I think they were sitting on this waiting for the right case because this issue has been brewing for a while. What happens when the meeting really isn't a meeting, there's no quorum of the body present. Nobody bangs a gavel. No one reads any minutes or takes any minutes. You just are chatting. And then along the way you reach a conclusion. Um, you know, so in this case, they said the County council was wrong, probably didn't mean to break the law. And were I think, I think my read is the compliance board realized they were sort of setting a new standard with this decision. Absolutely. But, but they basically are saying, if you are doing a bunch of stuff and creating the implied fabric of a meeting, that itself is really a meeting. And then all these other laws about public notice and input ought to apply. So, okay. I mean, we all love sunshine laws and now where are we? If you're a County official, a County commissioner in up in Garrett County, Two people is a quorum of a three-member body. So we couldn't go have coffee and talk about anything related to government, right? Otherwise, that'd be a quorum. Right. I, I, potentially, right. right, I guess. Right. I guess. Robin, you and I were talking about it. Like, this is yeah. widespread implications for everybody. 
Yeah. Speaking of notice, it feels like we're being put on notice that there's a shift here yeah. and we need to be more aware and more scrutinizing maybe of what is a meeting. I mean, I think it's not about the technology, but it's undeniable that having the ability to text and email and begin a conversation in that way also yeah. changes this dynamic and, and, the sure. look and, and the look and feel. Definitely, definitely. I, but I mean, the, the notion of two members of a larger group, you know, bump into each other at the water cooler, you know, at the county commissioner's building and randomly someone says, boy, I've been getting a lot of phone calls on that thing that we're going to talk about tonight. You know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking I've got to vote no. Right. I I think, I mean, honestly, I, I think most people who are in, on these public bodies and in positions of public trust have for a long time felt like, okay, if I'm in a place and there's, you know, there's a quorum of the body, we all know there's sort of a bright line rule. Hey, once there's three out of five of us here, we shouldn't be talking about official business. And I've seen that happen. Yeah, absolutely. We we see that lots of the time. All the time. And, And from time to time it happens when Mako's having an informal conversation with the members of a county council or whatnot, and suddenly it turns into, well, that's something the council is considering, you know, as a matter before the council. So it's not appropriate to discuss here, mm-hmm. but we're going to be taking it up at some meeting down the road. You know, okay, that's right, fine. That's Conversation's fine. over. And like everybody's trying to do the right thing. But yes, yeah. even if you're trying to do the right thing, where the heck is that line drawn? I mean, that sure sounds like if, you know, if all the elements that could lead to an ultimate decision can be constituted over time without there ever having been a quorum present or mm-hmm. in attendance or even on the invite list or whatever. Or a reply all. Right. Reply yeah. all. Yeah, exactly. Um, without that. I mean, yeah, okay, but even, okay, reply all though, that's an email where everybody's listed. Right. So, so in theory, there's, there's a, what's not paper trail pixel trail (laughs) that that connects to all these different people even if they don't read it at the same moment in theory that's a conversation among all the people that seems like okay that's kind of a meeting ish but what if it's one person what what if you have a slack channel right right i mean this is this is the big trending thing now is people stop doing emails and texts and so forth they just set up a slack and then you can check in whenever you want and if your name gets mentioned they give you a little tingle right okay so what if you have a discussion on a slack channel three out of the seven members don't ever even visit it but they're men- but they're, they're mentioned as members mm-hmm. i mean like the technology does accelerate all this it confuses all of it and so what do you do? What do you do with that water cooler? You're on a body of you're in the, the the you know you're on the Prince George's County Council, and it's two members of the County Council. And do you just have to not talk about anything work related at every venue Which all is the time? Almost impossible, right? I mean, you're you're with your fellow members of the elected body. This is what you do, <laughs> and you're getting the same emails from constituents. You're hearing about all these issues, and you can't. I can't even talk to Robin now and say, "Oh my gosh, did you get this email? Did you hear from this person about this issue? How much have you been hearing from your district or whatnot?" Sounds like we're having the same problems in our district. It sounds like potentially all of that now is off the table, and I don't know what that means. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's 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 really incredible when you think about. The, the widespread ramifications right. of what this could entail. Like you can you can see what the compliance board is is thinking about. 
right? I mean, the last thing you want is a body that's actively trying to subvert the law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have you have the closed door, smoke filled room meeting where everybody sure, agrees. Sure. Here's how the vote's going to go, and then you come out to the public meeting that's been announced and. You skip all the you skip all the stuff. You just take the vote. It's five to two. It's over. And, that's it. and people say, "How on earth did that did that go so smoothly and so quickly?" And it turns into, "Oh, something must have happened. There must have been the real meeting someplace else." Right. So I mean, okay, you're like you're a you you've, you're a you're an attorney who's volunteered your time to sit on the compliance board. You're basically saying, okay, you should comply in substance with what we're trying to do with this law. Like, no one's going to fault them for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but they do acknowledge that the, <laughs> this body did not mean to break the law here or break the rules. And they acknowledge that. So this yeah. is not a situation, clearly, where there's some backfilled, smoke-filled room where they're making these decisions. So this right. is why I think it's so significant. That's, well, you know, so, that in itself is a problem. But so this, I, but I, I But I think, I think that's what they're trying – like, that's what they most want to stop. And I mean, I don't know the specifics of this decision with this county council right. and whether sending this letter. I mean, it doesn't sound like there was any really anything subterranean here. But the, the, I think what the compliance board is worried about is whether it's through technology or even old fashioned means, people just yeah. meeting in the staff room in advance of the big meeting room. You, you want to avoid that being a way around the law that says do it in the open. Mm-hmm. Okay, so like if, even if you completely agree with that in spirit, you've got a mess in practice right now. The I think. logistics of yes. this it's, would be right, right, and and especially so for our county boards that are required to wear two hats, and they are constantly going back and forth between executive functions and things that should be closed parts of meetings and stuff like that. It's already tough for them to negotiate that, but now having to worry about even in your legislative functions. Less than a quorum can still be a violation. Any two-party conversation can be a violation. I don't know. I mean, at some point, does like oh, I'm I'm I post on social media the way that I'm planning to vote on an issue? Does that mean I've revealed it to the other members of the legislative body? And then if, what I, if I comment on right, it? right. I mean, honestly, I I don't know how like how far down the rabbit hole does this conversation go? We can't see from here to the end. And I mean, like it's Mako's job to flip out about this kind of stuff to some degree, but I mean, I think there's, I think there's some flip outable stuff here. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's remarkable and it's interesting. There, there is one body that's not subject to these rules, Michael and Robin. Hmm. And then you want to, you want to guess. <laughs> Let's see. Now when the Maryland general assembly decides to make laws about how <laughs> meetings should work, right. They don't apply to the Maryland General Assembly. Oh, that's funny. Okay, good. interesting. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Interesting. How about that? And and they say it, it can't because <laughs> of what we're talking about. Just the nature of their job, and they're on the fly, and there's so much to do. This, this, the ramifications of this, and it is flip outable. I think, as you said. <laughs> I mean, I know a lot of people are concerned, and not only are they trying to transition from the dual roles, like you said, but now, I mean, even even worrying about talking to Robin or to Michael at the water cooler. Having to think and stop and say, you know what, we we can't have this conversation. It's just it's really weird and it's really awkward. And I I just worry how far this does go and how far the rabbit hole you can go. And as you said, maybe that they were waiting for the right case, but this is the direction they wanted to go for a long time. I I, I suspect that. I mean, a, a side issue here. I mean, I'm I'm mostly interested in the big picture issue about whether 
whether well-meaning members of public bodies are going to screw this up without realizing it. Mm -hmm. I'm worried about that. That's right. But there's a secondary issue here too in the narrow version. And that is, does this basically mean let's, let's take for, take for granted that the general assembly moves quickly. How many times do we as participants in the policy process get two weeks to come up with what we want to say at a public meeting? That's right. Not all that often. So do you effectively preclude public bodies from participating in the process, the Talbot County Council will probably never be able to send a letter to Annapolis on a bill again, mm-hmm. unless they do it the minute the bill is introduced before it's ever been scheduled. Because right. if they have to host, you know, post on on their website and in their public place or in the newspaper or whatever, we're going to have a meeting in two weeks, and the purpose is to take a position on House Bill Two Hundred Two that will be heard in Annapolis someday. We don't know when. Like most often, what's happening is we find out on Thursday the bill's being heard on Tuesday, yep. they can't participate yep. and they're just shut out. And even I don't, if I don't think that's a de- desirable outcome. No, and even if they know in advance, by the time they have that meeting, the bill could be substantially different. There could be amendments added to it. Things could have changed. And so you're not able to react on the fly. That's that's right. certainly a big deal. I right. Mean, definitely. And, and that would apply to school boards, but also to mm-hmm. like down into the fine grains, the the soil conservation districts and like all these pu- public bodies, the economic development corporations and stuff. There's tons of people who sit on public and pseudo public bodies like this that have a stake in the policy process. I mean, just the narrow part of this finding could be troubling too. Right. Definitely. And I don't think, I don't think the compliance board is out to get public bodies. I think they're trying to make the best of a tough law that was written before, you know, so many of these things made this kind of extra conversation easy. So. Yeah, I think, Robin, you pointed out, I think technology <laughs> definitely plays a role in this. And again, it's it's government trying to catch up with evolving technology that it definitely plays a role. Here. Yeah, it might be worrying them. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. Maybe they're trying to get out ahead of it. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly something that could could be the case here. So maybe more to come on this. I think definitely more to come on this, but we'll leave it there for now. Robin, thank you again for joining us. This is great information. Again, we will link all of this on the, the podcast episode blog and on the, the feed. But thank you so much. And we look forward to even more information in the, the weeks and months ahead. Absolutely. Sounds good. All right. That'll do it for Michael Sanders. And this is Kevin Canale signing off. As always, if you enjoy the plot podcast, please give us a like. Let your friends, family know. Subscribe. It really helps to get our message out. And we will talk to you soon. <laughs>